Welcome to Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships. I'm Rabbi Brent Spodek in the Hudson Valley, and I am thrilled to welcome this week Asael and Galit Romanelli to the show. Asael is a social worker, a couple and family therapist, and Galit is a PhD gender student and a personal coach. Together, they co-direct The Potential State, which helps couples remarry each other through individual coaching, couples therapy, couples retreats, and seminars. Their goal is to change the world one couple at a time. And Galit, Asel, I'm so thrilled to be on the show with you. Thank you. Thank you, so are we. Delighted to be here. Yes. So we're going to be looking today at the story of Adam Vachava, Adam and Eve, possibly the most famous story in the Hebrew Bible. It's the story of, as we imagine it, the origins of humanity. And so I'm just going to tell the story here in short, even though we're familiar with it, and then we can dive in and see what we can learn from this. Let's do it. So... Our story begins, we're going to begin in in chapter two, when the Holy One puts the human being, at this point there's just one, puts one human being in the garden to work it and to guard it. And the Holy One says, hey, listen, you can eat of anything you want, knock yourself out, it's a smorgasbord, eat from anything you can see, except the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that one. Time goes on, the Holy One says, ah, you know what, it's not so good for a person to be alone. Lotov the Yotadam Levado, it's you shouldn't be alone, so I'm gonna make a helper. I'm gonna make an Ezer Konegdo. A it's hard to translate this phrase. A a helper in concert, a helper in opposition, somebody in some sort of complicated dynamic that we'll unpack, fashioned out of the rib, out of the protective bones of the human being. That new Ezer Konegdo, that new being is Eve. Great. So far, so good. But now we have this serpent come in, this snake, and says, hey, Eve, that tree over there, it's got amazing fruit. Why don't you eat some of that tree? And she says, "Ah, I'm not sure. We're not supposed to. He says, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. She goes and eats it. She's like, oh, that was pretty good. And then she brings it to Adam and says, hey, check out this fruit. It's pretty good. Why don't you have some of this fruit too? They have the fruit. Everything's great. And then they look at each other like, oh my God, we're naked. Ah! So they make themselves some garments out of some leaves. They sew some things together. There was no Amazon to order from yet, so they had to do it. It was a strictly DIY operation. And then they're there in the garden. Now they're not uh, freaked out because they're naked. They've got some clothes. And the Holy One shows up and is moving around and asks, Ayeka, where are you? Right? What's going on? What is this? And Adam says, oh, so sorry, God. I hid because I was naked. And God says to him, naked? Who told you you were naked? What do you know about naked? And Adam says, it was her. She did it. She told me that we were naked. (laughs) And and the the woman says, ah, it was was the snake. At this point, this is where God gets all godly and lays down the law and says, all right, this is not cool. This is not how it's supposed to be. You, snake, you're going to crawl on your belly for the rest of time. No more legs for you. You're going to be down in the dirt. Eve, you and all of your descendants, all women who are going to follow from you, you're going to give birth and it's going to suck. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. That's going to be your punishment. And you, Adam, you're going to have to work really, really, really hard just to get food to eat. You're going to sweat and break your back just to put bread on your table. At that point, the humans are like the Holy One, sort of, in that there's a knowledge of the difference of good and evil or something like that. But then 
We, they, we get banished from the garden, get sent east of Eden, not to be allowed back into the garden, which is now guarded by fiery swords, keeping us from that primordial excellence. And here we are outside of the garden, all of these many thousands of years. That, in short, is chapter two and three of Genesis. So tell me, what jumps out of you? What do you make of this story? What do we learn from this story? Oh my God, oh. where to begin? Where to begin? <laughs> there is so much here. There is so much. I, I, Every time I hear the story of Adam and Eve, I'm like, where to begin unpacking it, right? It kind of lays the foundation, I think, in my mind of kind of how we view this, this relationship, this intimate relationship between man and woman, right? Where it, there's the blame game. Nobody actually takes accountability. Nobody owns their shit. Nobody's like, okay, I did it. And also there's this very kind of like we see the split today of man being kind of like doomed to work, right? The sweat of the brow and woman bearing children painfully. And these are the stories that we have kind of taken with us and passed down generation to generation to generation. And I kind of feel like we can tell the story differently. We can really tell the story differently. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. And we can look at also the way I like to kind of look at the Adam and Eve story is that, wow, by eating from the tree of knowledge, we moved on. You know, the story moves along. Otherwise, it would be boring. We'd still all be in the Garden of Eden. We'd still be unaware, you know, just in this la-la land. But that's not, that's not life. Right. And if we want to have a whole experience, and I'm curious to know how kind of this all lands for us, but in my mind, if we want to have a full life, it has it all. It has the good, the bad, the ugly deception, kind of evolving into awareness, learning how to become accountable rather than kind of the he said, she said, who done it game. And wow, thanks, Serpent. Thanks, Eve, for getting us out of there. Yeah. So I'll say, what, what, what do you make of it? What, how do you interpret this? So I'm going to go, I'm going to reverse engineer this story. Okay. All right. I'm going to start with the, with the typical couple we meet in the clinic. I'm just going to say the typical dance. We see the martyr married single mom, the intimacy queen who's tired and burnt out being the downstairs parents with her covertly depressed, emotionally handicapped man who just wants peace and quiet. Okay. That's, that's what I'm seeing. Fast forward 5,000 years, okay? And then <laughs> a lot of our couples are religious, right? So if I'm, when I look at this story, what I'm basically seeing is psychological patriarchy. If we believe, you know, passed down from white men to white men all the way down to here. And I actually want to start with the punishment, okay? Let's, let's unpack that. All right. So psychological patriarchy, this is Terry Reel's concept of basically separating the masculine and feminine and positioning the, the masculine above the feminine. Masculine power, decision, line right? Authority. And women circle, soft, emotions, intimacy, lower. Okay. So let's go there. And, and by the way, this is what I do with, especially when we have religious couples, I go straight to the Bible just to shock them up and say, so she's going to be, you're going to have kids. It's going to be sad. You're going to be sad. It's going to be hot, painful. But the second part of that is, you will only desire the man and he will rule you. He will rule you. That is your punishment. You will be forever underneath the man. You will be working for the man. You will be under him. You'll be underpaid, underwork. You'll be the helper beneath him. Yeah. You'll be the helper, right? Because you're part of his rib, okay? And let's, I'll just do a little piggyback to the song we sing on Friday night to our woman, which is called Aishin Chayu, 
which is basically a long list of the household duties that she's doing. Okay, so we're seeing that going all the way back to the original, to the origin, the original sin. And what was Eve's sin that she was curious that she wanted more out of life? She wanted to eat. She wanted more. She and maybe later, right? And maybe later we'll defer into Lilith because that's where I think that midrash can give us a lot. But I'll just finish this point and then I'll throw it back to you, Brent. And then for the man, right? So he's going to work his tush up and he's basically going to be a slave to work. Okay, basically, if I, if I see that, if you go back to the coberly depressed man, coberly depressed male, by the way, that the, yeah. the whole idea there is that this is another material concept is that depression for men is underdiagnosed and uh, male depression, cobra male depression is actually manifest as numbness, as a narrow emotional range, working nine to five, dreaming, you know, and then drugging and numbing ourselves through alcohol, sex, porn, money, work. So basically what we're seeing is the blueprint, his punishment is you will basically coberly depressed Work your church to death, not seen, not being celebrated, being feared by your wife, okay? Hiding behind her. There's no accountability. There's no responsibility. And what I, I, this lands to me is like, this is almost like a justification of what we see in the clinic as the real pandemic. In fact, in Israel, it's so much so that it's already become a caricature on TV shows and movies and Facebook groups, like Married with Children, okay? Go for Married with Children, like that legendary the show sitcom. from 30 years ago? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Right, like that's kind of the stereotypical, right? And I think I, and that's that's where that story meets me. And I want to pause here and just respond to some thoughts. Yeah, there's there's so much here. I just want to name one thing, maybe to put a pin in it. Maybe we'll come back to it. Maybe it'll be another conversation. Something that really strikes me, and I've obviously read the story a million times, but in the way you just recounted it, is their alienation from their own bodies, their own physical experience, right? Chava, Eve has the experience of giving birth, obviously not an experience I've had, but a profound experience, but presented as painful and terrible, something to be avoided, a punishment. Right? Yes. And then Adam being told, okay, working your body, using using your body, that's going to be your punishment, right? Using your body physically is is a punishment. It's a bad thing. And I'm just hearing there like generations, and I'll say it particularly as a Jew and a diaspora Jew, right? A sense of alienation from our own physical, our own embodied, our own even somatic experience and how much work has to be done to recover that. That's actually the pin I want to put in and come back to at another point, because what I really want to talk about is two phrases that you use, both of which I want to know more about. One is covert male depression, right? And you mentioned uh, Terry Real, monumental thinker I know has been essential for you and also for me in my journey, talking about underdiagnosed male depression. You also used the phrase, and I, I apologize if I'm not quite capturing this right, the single married mother. And I wonder if you can say a little bit more about covert male depression and the single married mother, and if those two concepts fit together or they exist independently. I'll start with covert male depression, okay? So... So here's the story, right? Baby boys and baby girls are sensitive in the same way, right? They're born with the same emotional range from the low to the high. Socialization, right? To the way, you know, we don't know, we don't only get circumcised on our penis. We also get emotionally circumcised. We get slowly, we get these messages. Don't be a wuss. Don't be softy. Don't cry. Boys don't cry. Say goodbye to mommy. And slowly we, our emotional range gets narrow and narrow. And we basically start running from our father's and grandfather's pain. The metaphor he gives, running, we're running from this fire. We're running into doing, into work, into money, into porn, into secrets, into food, because we don't want to feel that pain. Okay, so what the, the tax we pay for the loss of the relational is our emotional rage gets number. We get narrow and narrow, so all we have left is sex and aggression. That's all we have left. That's why men want sex so much, because that's when I can touch and feel and, uh, 
Okay. And then slowly our emotion gauge range gets very, very narrow. Then we have a thick layer of cynicism. We blind ourselves. We dumb ourselves down. We blind ourselves to our wife's unhappiness and bitterness and contempt. And basically we were just working, working and dreaming. We, you know, and it's really say we're living from weekend to weekend, waiting for the football game, waiting for the next vacation. Cause that's because we basically hate our lives, hate the nine to five fall in shape. Okay. So next to every covertly male depressed male, there is the frustrated woman, the frustrated married single mom. Right. Who's basically, you know, traditionally speaking, doing all the housework, the care work, the emotional labor on her own because of this kind of very patriarchal division of labor. Right. But I think that one thing that's important to add to what Asad is saying is that part of the issue is that because there's this separation at a young age between boys from their emotional world, they don't necessarily even have the emotional language, right? There's sad, mad, and glad kind of thing. And that's it, right? And the the emotional vocabulary is even lacking. And I think, Brent, to your point, what's really important is this, the severing of being connected to our bodies, right? And I think that in a way for women, for girls and women, we still have that. There's it has not been severed in such a, a way that it has been for boys and for men. And I, there was something about, you know, just now how you said it that made me think that actually the fact that, okay, our punishment, quote unquote, yeah, is, is, to, is to have pain through labor, but we're still immensely connected to our body. We're still immensely feeling, right? Regardless of whether it's pain or not, like you said, it is, it's, it's a very significant experience that lies within our body. How we approach that is very dependent on kind of the messages that we've received and internalized. But I think with men, because the the emotional vocabulary and accessibility to emotional kind of language and, and space to be emotional has been severed from such a young age, there really is no way to kind of get connected again, especially if we think that how many men kind of work the land and have that kind of feeling of, you know, feeling the ground? Because there is something that's very embodied in that as well. But when you're kind of sitting in front of a computer, you're completely disconnected. There's no way to kind of get connected again. And one of the things that we do in the clinic is we really try to help people get connected to their body because before we had language, our body learned. That's mm-hmm. how we learned so much. It was through our body. And our body is a great tool to collect data about ourselves and to help us understand what we're feeling and why we're feeling it. And it's this immense pool of data about who we are. I'll just piggyback on what Galit said. Like, I grew up in a very depressed household and I was not connected to my body, right? And I actually have a tattoo on my arm that says, feel. Uh-huh. because I realized I just didn't know what I was feeling. And a lot of times in the clinic, I will meet men and they don't know what they're feeling. It's so common. There's actually a term called normative male alexthemia. Alexthemia is the inability to know what you're feeling. Normative male. So it's already, it's the norm. It's the norm. Men are emotionally handicapped. Okay. So next to every man that has alexthemia, there's a woman who's feeling for both of them, who's angry for both of them, who's sad for both of them. Can we call her hysteric? Can we call her emotional? whatever, by all those things. Okay. So, so it's, it's a dance. We're systemic thinkers, right? So it had next to every man, a covertly depressed man, there's a woman who's feeling for both of them or maybe one of the kids. And that's a, that's a vicious cycle. That's going to go loop, loop, loop. And the second you look at the Bible, well, they'll think, well, it's normal. Married with children, Al Bundy, he's covertly male depressed. It's already, it's already a caricature. Sure. So I've been reading this book that I'm, I, I suspect, you know, I'm like the last one to get on board with this. The body keeps the score about how oh. trauma is held in the body. 
And something I've been thinking about a lot, we both work with couples. You work with couples after they're married, maybe after they're already in these dynamics. I tend to work with couples on their way to getting married as they're excited and positive or feeling positive, but also nervous. And already these dynamics that I'm so grateful to you for the language for already are showing up. You know, I just talked to a couple this morning where I one of the questions I asked them is, how do you soothe your own anxiety? And the guy said, jokingly, you know, Lefroig. And I was like, you know, that's a joke that there's a lot in there. Let, let's try and unpack that a little bit. But one of the places where I find I can talk to people once I can get past the uh, squeamish factor is sex, right? And this is where I actually, from elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, the fact that yada means both to know someone like I know them, but also to have sex with them. And a lot of what I talk to them about is three things that go into being a good lover in bed. And that somehow I find people are easy or have an easier time talking about that. So to be a good lover in bed, first thing you got to do is get naked, right? You have to literally take off the things that shield you from the rest of the world. You need to expose your vulnerability. If you're living in America or Israel or any country that's got significant body dysmorphism, right, you've got to show your partner your pouncy belly, your saggy breast, your underarm flat, whatever it is. You have to show what you feel insecure about. And then the flip side of that is that you have to be tender with those things, right? Most people get that you have to be a next level asshole to be in bed with someone and be like, you're fat, right? Of course, when somebody exposes their vulnerability, their sensitive parts, a good lover will be tender, will be gentle with them, right? And that's obviously true in a, in a physical arena and an emotional arena as well, right? You reveal, to be intimate with someone, you reveal your intimate places. They're not necessarily the same as on your body, but the intimate place of your heart. And a good lover is then gentle with those places, the gentle with the places where you're sensitive. And the last thing that I talk to folks about with this is that a good lover understands that what turns me on is not necessarily what turns my partner on. And part of me being a good lover is being aware, all right, what excites my partner? What turns them on? And can I do what works for them not assume that what works for me is what works for them. But getting people, including myself, to move from the physical arena where you can literally see this into the emotional arena, right? To say to a guy, okay, dude, you know how to take off your shirt? That's great. Can you take off the, the emotional chain mail you've been carrying around with you since 13 or three or eight days, right? Can you take that off? Do you even know how to take it off? And I think most people don't. I mean, I know for myself, I don't think I really knew how to even recognize that I was carrying that sort of armor until my wife got seriously ill and I had to deal with some of my own fears and traumas in my own life. But to put simply, I got forced into it. There was no way I was signing up for the taking off my body armor course until I had no choice. Yeah. And then realized it's the best thing that ever happened to me, but couldn't have known that at the time and wouldn't have signed up for it. How do you help people do that? So I'll give you an example. So we're working with a couple now that came after an affair, right? So we meet them when shit hits the fan. So here's the metaphor that we use. So we have, imagine emotional rage being from one to 10. Okay. One being dark despair and 10 being ecstasy. Usually when I ask men, what's your emotional range in your marriage? What will they usually say, Brent? Four to six. Exactly. We call them four to sixers. Four to six basically means you're surviving, you're not living. That's being survival mode. That's covertly male depression. But the truth is it's not a scale, it's a circle. All right. So one in 10 meet when you cry and laugh at the same time. So when you're only living a four to six existence, you're actually missing out on the whole emotional range. 
And here's the kicker. Okay. Why do men do our four to six? Just because I don't want to feel the pain. I want to feel one to three because I'm scared of it. I've never felt it. I wasn't allowed to feel it. But here's the thing that the key to your joy is in your pain. If you want to feel the seven to tens without alcohol or drugs, you're going to have to expand your range. You're going to have to feel the one to fours. Okay. So the key to your joy is in your pain. So for these men, we slowly try to convince them or show them, or the truth is we meet them on their way in anyways, because they, you know, they just got real. But then we, we, we kind of breathe with them. We let them breathe through the one to four. And we have a man now who is in the trenches of the one to four. He is in a dark place. He's like, why am I doing this? I just want to run away. I want to go back to my four to six. He's like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm done. I'm finished. And we sat with him and we, we kind of made space and allowed him to really kind of really feel those dark feelings. And, you know, also to have his wife witness that, right? And witness it, but without feeling like she has to fix it or it's her fault or she has to make it better, but just being able to sit and witness. And I think that that also kind of speaks to what you're talking about, Brent, when you talk about the intimacy of knowing sexually, right? There's that bearing witness, that bearing witness to your partner, exposing themselves, being vulnerable, being willing to kind of surrender, because that's what this mature intimacy looks like. It's this mutual surrendering to each other. And I think that part of the difficulty, sorry, I kind of hijacked to say this point here for a second, but I think that part of the difficulty, especially in terms of sex, is that We've all been sold stories and formulas of what relationships look like, even with Adam and Eve, right? There's a formula there. It's prescribed and we've taken it generations and generations and we're still doing it, even though it doesn't serve us anymore, right? There's another interpretation. There's more narratives to the story that if we're willing to turn it this way or that way, we can actually see, right? But, but we lean on these prescriptions and the same thing with sex. We think sex needs to look a certain way. We we need to look a certain way. It needs to sound a certain way. We need to hit certain spots in order for it to be good. And that's not what it's about. It's about me knowing Asael in that moment. I'm thinking about Bell Hook's book, The Will to Change. And in it, she distinguishes between men and patriarchy. Yes, and that was hugely powerful for me, recognizing, A, that I'm a man, I intend to stay a man, I feel comfortable being a cisgendered man, but I don't have to be patriarchal in that way. Yes. I can separate from that. But also recognizing in ways that were transformative for me and my relationship, but also, you know, I'm a child of divorce and seeing about how I was raised and some of the dynamics there, that you don't have to be a man to be patriarchal. <laughs> no, you do not. And recognizing, Galit, what you said, how difficult it was in my relationship to be able to say, I'm scared out of my mind. I'm powerless. I'm weak, right? That to be able to, for me and my partner, to really own the fact that I'm not Superman, which when I say it, I sound like an idiot because of course I'm not Superman. But emotionally, it's not so easy to actually get in touch with that. But there was work for me and my female partner to recognize I'm not Superman, I'm not the Incredible Hulk, I'm not going to be, and I don't want to try to be, and you don't want me to try to be, but I'm programmed to try to be. And doing the work for both of us to be comfortable with me and the one to three, to use your language, was work. It was and is work, because I think all of us like the idea of someone to come in and fix it, save it, 
make everything better. And it's really difficult in all sorts of situations. I mean, there are all sorts of unsavory political characters in countries all around the world who manipulate that desire for a strong person to just come in and make everything better. But that desire is so strong because sitting with not knowing, sitting with uncertainty, sitting with pain, sitting with fear sucks. I don't want to do that. I'd much rather have Superman come in and make it better until I remember Superman is made up. There is no Superman. I can watch the movie and escape for two hours, and that's cool, or not. But one way or the other, it's not real life. There are no Supermen in real life. They're just us schleppers. (laughs) That's hard. I mean, it's hard for me to recognize. I think I can safely speak for my wife to say it was hard for her to recognize. I mean, do you find that in couples that what the woman says she wants actually is a lot more complicated to get to? So I really want to, I thank you for that question because again, so we're, so these men are exploring to expand the Ford sex, okay? There's three reasons we usually sell to men why it's worth your while to go beyond the four to six. One, you'll feel the seven to 10. B, when you're a four to six, you're not interesting. You're a one-dimensional character. So slowly your wife's going to be more interested in the neighbor, in her rabbi, in her yoga teacher, in books, in her work, with her girlfriends and her PhD. You're just less interesting. And the third one is the more you'll expand your emotional range, the more your wife Okay, because well, usually next to every four to six year, there's a woman who's feeling the one to ten. And he's like, wow, you're so intense. She's not intense. She's just feeling for both of you. So it's in your enlightened self-interest, as Dariel says, to expand your emotional range so your wife can also regulate and also find her, her, her space. But here's where it gets more interesting. And one last one is that you're, you're, when you're a four to six year, you're modeling to your boys and girls that that's how a man looks like. So your girls will... Be loyal girls and marry a four to sixer, and your sons will be four to sixers, but that's a different story. But I want to bring the other side of that, which is women, as men are exploring the, the one to tens, need to lean out, step back. Because what happens, obviously, the man starts exploring the one to threes and like, whoa, that's not that's not appropriate. You're way too aggressive. What is this? So they start freaking out because he's un, he's unbalancing what we call homeostasis in family therapy. He's unbalancing the tradition. He's unbalancing the Adam and Eve. He's like, what are you doing here? And that's called maternal gatekeeping. Don't step in one. That's my, I'm the intimacy queen. You're the emotionally handicapped. So what we've noticed is we have to work with women as well to help them step out because the the, the parallel process for women is to reown their aggression and anger Mm. because that's the shadow. We castrate men from their sensitivity and we castrate women from their aggression, anger, rage. Be sweet, be cute, smile. I think we're we're all victims of patriarchy at the end of the day. And it's, it's really warped our minds and it's limited our range. And I think that part of what we've noticed in the dances is that if we want to expand the emotional range, then it means that women need to own their aggression and men need to own their vulnerability. And in order for that to happen, each one needs to kind of go on their own journey simultaneously. And that's kind of where the leaning out and in needs to happen. I'll give an example from our marriage. Please. So there's in in couples therapy, we call them turtles and thunderstorms, okay? Turtles are people like me that avoid conflict, you know, go under the shell. I'll talk to you when, I, when you come down. And go, it's a thunderstorm. Rah, zero to- Get out of here. Come talk to me. Okay. And usually turtles and thunderstorms marry, right? Yep. Brent, yep. You know this? Yep. Are you yep. Turtle? Yep. yep. Uh, no, I'm a thunderstorm. Oh, you're the thunderstorm. My wife's a turtle. Okay. So the turtles, obviously, they think that the thunderstorms are, are like not are unregulated. and They're they're real the highest. They're real the highest, right? And for the first eight years in our marriage, I mean, we just want to, I want to open parentheses. We really believe what Estelle Perez said. We will all be married more than once. The question will be with the same partner. And basically that's what we do. We're real, because we're always changing and evolving. Okay. We, we might talk about that in a different conversation, but back to our conversation. So for the first eight years, I would label Galit as angry. Are you angry? You're angry. You're angry. You're angry. And I, I was basically gaslighting her and the kids 
labeling Galit as angry, where actually what she was, she was passionate. She was feeling the one to 10. But as a four to sixer, if you feel anything that's out of the range, you're, you know, you're uncontrolled, right? You're raging. And it took eight years till I finally opened my eyes. I propose it's, you know, the, 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 the fruit of the knowledge, the tree of knowledge of like saying, okay, that's not, that is her feeling the emotional range. It's passion. So for men, we need to stop fearing our wife's feelings and passion and anger and hostility and even contempt. We need to open our eyes and say, yeah, bring it, bring it. Because that's the only way they're going to step out. Because when we castrate our women from their anger, we label them as martyrs and victims. And then once again, we're labeled as the persecutors. We're the baboons. They're the damsel in the stress. And, and there another generation goes down. So possibly my favorite thing about Judaism is that we just take the Torah as raw material, right? The, the practice of Midrash is possibly the best thing we've ever come up with. Shabbat as a close second. So in that spirit of taking the Torah as raw material and rewriting it, right? Writing fan fiction, writing Midrash on it. Let me ask you guys, all right, so Adam Vachava, Adam and Eve, starting wherever it is you might want to start, how might you want to retell the story? What's the Midrash you want to tell? Oh. The foundational story. Let's just take for a moment, there's a foundational man, a foundational woman. They're in a garden. What happens? How do you want to, how, what's a healthier version of the story you want to tell? Well, first of all, we have to make room for Lilith. Yes. Right? We have to because. Bring it, Galeen. Because she's there. She's there, right? She's there before Eve. And she's there in that the story goes, and it's written, right? It's written, Mamash in the Pshat, that two beings are created from Earth. And that that's Adam's first wife. Apropos, we're, we're married more than once. Maybe we need to incorporate this asale in, in our yes, being yes. married more than once. But the first time around, Lilith is Adam's first wife. And she refuses to lie beneath him because as far as she's concerned, they were made equally. She's not a helper. She's an equal. And she won't lie beneath Adam and she is banished from the Garden of Eden and she is completely demonized. And this is the archetypal woman who owns her sexuality, who knows what she wants. You know, whenever she's kind of drawn and illustrated, she has fiery red hair, right? She is passionate. And the Madonna, uh, a horse split, right? That we, mm -hmm. that we often talk about. So that's Adam and Eve, right? The mother, the nurturing versus kind of the the demonized sexual woman who will be the temptress. And I think that if it kind of, in my mind, I can't think of the Adam and Eve story without bringing up Lilith, because I think that she brings a more whole story, right? We have both. We have mm -hmm. both. And there's there's no reason to, to demonize or to cast out. We need both. And so first, I want to make space for that. And second, if we want to go with the kind of like the other narrative, the alternative narrative of how we can look at Adam and Eve, it's that we need to move the story along. We always need to move the story along. And so taking that bite of the apple is where progress comes, is where awareness comes, where we open our eyes and we choose change. We choose change from a place of becoming aware. I said it's like making his little dance. So, <laughs> Galeed, yeah, Galeed, yeah, go let's, ahead. Let's do it. Galeed, let's role play Adam and Eve, the differentiated Adam. Uh, let's do it. Are you, are you okay with that, Brett? Can we do that? Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Brett, okay, let's say. Brett can be the serpent. Oh, yes. great. <laughs> okay. So, let's say, um, Eve, listen. Okay, I'm really rocking it in, in this forest, but there's like one tree. God said, don't touch. And I'm like scared shitless. I don't want to do it because I'm, because I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pleaser. 
Because you're a pleaser, you're this, a yes man. Yeah. But wait, I'm no, yes he, what, but here's the thing, because I am a rule follower, and I'll say that I'm a rule, a rule follower, and, and I also have a people pleaseritis, which many, many women do. And I do want to have a little caveat and say that technically, God never told Eve she couldn't have the apple, right? So mm-hmm. let's just call a spade a spade. But okay, well, do we want to be, do, but, uh, but let's go with you. Let's go with you, Adam. I see your emotional bid here. Yeah. And I'm going to match it. I'm going to say, yeah, but if we stay here, every day is the same. I've had everything. I'm kind of, aren't you curious? Don't you want to know? I'm scared, but I'm scared. I only know this. this I, I only know. I'm, I'm linear. I'm lying. I don't know anything no, else. But stepping out of our comfort zone, that's where growth is. See, she already knew. She already knew so much. All right. So fine. I'll do it. I'll do it. Let's do it. Let's take a bite. Let's do it. Okay. I'll go first because I see how scared you are. Okay. Take it. Done. Done. Here you go. Oh my God. What do you see? Are you tripping? What do you see? What do you see? You're naked. I don't know. I see another serpent. I see another (laughs) serpent. (laughs) But it's connected to you. What the? Oh my my God. Wait, I'm scared. Wait, I I just broke God's rule. Daddy's going to be angry at me. Can I hide behind you? Can I blame you? Do you have to? Okay, I'll take the fall for both of us. Don't, don't do that. If this is the the correct story, then no, I can do this. I can step up. I can own my shit. Yeah, you can. I'm going to own my shit. Let's do it together. Let's tell daddy together. And scene. We did it. Amazing. So there was so much in there. Galit, you were willing to be brave, but you also were inviting him to come in with you. Azal, you were moving, right, from one place to another. Something I kept thinking about in the role play, but also from what you were talking about with Lilith, is the sequence, right? In the Torah, we encounter Lilith first and then Eve. And then I'm thinking in contemporary life, Maybe we meet someone and, you know, we're in our 20s and the full force of patriarchy in a capitalist society hasn't fully landed on us. So the freedom that a woman feels in her 20s might be a little closer to Lilith-esque. Time goes on, children are born, professional responsibilities change, maybe parents get ill, different caretaking responsibilities fall onto the shoulders of the woman. Right. Who might still be working a professional job for wages, but also has this, you know, the famous second shift or second and third and fourth shift taking care of everyone. And suddenly that wild rocking Lilith at 23 is now a harried, overburdened Chava at 43. Yeah. She's like, come on, Adam, pull your weight. Pull your weight, Adam. Yeah. I'm not even, you know, I sensed your, both of your excitement listening to you talk about, as Adam and Eve talk about the apple, it sounded like you weren't eating an apple, but mushrooms, right? And you were excited (laughs) for that trip. It's mushroom. It was a mushroom apple. Yeah. Listen, but that's what happens, right? When we eat from the tree of knowledge, right? We, when we gain awareness, because that's part of being willing to live is that you open your eyes to things. And part of what you open your eyes to, and this is what we work on with clients in the clinic, is that you see it all. You see your partner's flaws and you see, you know, things that maybe you're not going to get to, but you wanted. You're going to see your missings. You're going to see your faults. You're going to see, you know, you're going to see it all. But if you can own it, then you can start to choose and you can start to choose different things and you can start to walk together. You know what I mean? kind of went very existential there, but... I will see your existential and raise you one. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Tell me how this sounds. And this is thinking out loud here. But at a certain level, we're all afraid and freaked out that we're going to die. You know, and this is going back to Ernst Becker, going back to Freud, right? And the entirety of our systems, our social systems, is built to protect us from our fear of our own death. And if we just do this right, 
whatever the this is. Be a professional, be a woman, be sexually powerful, be financially powerful. We will hold death at bay. And, you know, and this is part of what eating of the tree was or part of what's understood, right? Understanding that we're mortal, that our time here is limited. And I wonder if part of what you're talking about, the differentiated vision of Adam and Eve, the differentiated vision that it sounds like you guys aspire to and you help your couples to get to, I aspire to, is to say, okay, wait a minute. I am a limited, flawed human being whose time on this earth is limited. And no matter what I write, no matter how many awards I win, no matter what happens, that's guaranteed. And this other person that I love is also mortal. And no matter how many awards she wins and no matter how many accolades she gets, she's also mortal. So the two of us in these mortal bodies that are destined to die are going to travel this road together. But we don't have to hold on so tight to whatever it is we're holding on to if we do it right. Yeah. No matter what we do, the end is the end. The question isn't, can we hold that at bay? The question is, can we journey together? Can we journey with grace and companionship? Can we live until we die? Yes. Can yeah. we live until we die? Because so often we see couples who are stuck in a rut because you know what? They're so afraid to look and open their eyes and be vulnerable and take that leap that they're numb. And being numb is being dead until you're dead. So I, I gotta, I've got to tell you the story. So I, I mentioned before I'd spent uh, some time in New Zealand. That's one important fact. Here's the second one for the story to make sense. Turns out, I've discovered over time I'm mildly claustrophobic. Not terribly claustrophobic. Elevators, no problem. Subway, no problem. Cat scans, little dicey, right? The idea of being in a submarine, little dicey. And so I was with my family, and we were in New Zealand. There are these incredible glowworm caves, right? You have to go into the cave underground to see these glowworms. So in this travel, in this place we were, you're actually on a boat. It felt like we were sailing to Hades. We were on a boat in an underground river, traveling along in this river, guided. There was a rope that we were, you know, moving along. And what we saw was incredible. We saw, I mean, it was like looking at the night sky, but it was all of these glowworms. Or so I'm told, because I was sitting there in the boat having a mild <laughs> panic attack, being like, okay, this, not so mild, this is like a professional operation. They can't lose tourists all the time. I'm sure we're going to get out okay. But then my anxious little brain kept going and being like, you know, I am in an earthquake zone. If an earthquake hits while we're here, we're screwed. There's no way we're getting out of here. And I started perseverating on that. What happens if there's an earthquake while I'm on the boat underground? And... You know, the only possible answer is I die. I die. But what I came to, and this is when I started weeping in the boat. I'm sitting in the boat, me, my wife, and our two kids. The way the boat is, we're all sitting in a line. So I'm we're all holding hands. I'm anxious. I don't need to be telepathic to be like, yeah, everyone else in the family is also we're literally in the same boat, a hundred meters under the ground. It's pitch dark except for these worms. We're all a little anxious. But what arose in me almost simultaneously is I don't want to die. And if I'm going to die, I want to die on an adventure holding hands with my family. Yes. Oh, wow. that and is so beautiful. It, it, it all came at once, right? And it was very much like there was no death wish. There was no embracing of death. Like I very much wanted to come out of that cave and go and get beers and hang out and go camping with my family. But realizing that one day I'm going to die, I hope it's far in the future, 
but I want to be holding hands with my family. I want to be on an adventure. And that sense of what you're saying, that in order to feel the, uh, I guess, seven to 10, you need to feel the yes. one to three. Yes. But look at that. Look at how smart your body is because you had that, that you had that panic attack and it is what helped you get to that insight to actually treasure that moment and actually recognize that at that moment, if your life ended, God forbid, at that moment, that is how you'd want to go on an adventure, holding hands with the people that you love. Like, wow, what a profound, meaningful moment that your body was like, stop, Brent. You stop right now and you take this in. That's what happened there. Yeah. And you're right. It was totally, it was, it was holding hands. I mean, the holding hands, like when I, when I remember, like literally have it in the membership of my body, the most prominent feeling is feeling the hands in my hand. I have chills for you because that's muscle memory. And I think yeah. that oftentimes, and this is one of the things that we also help couples do is we help kind of re-narrate a moment because oftentimes in our body, you know, like stress and nerves can feel the same as excitement physiologically, right? And if you can help kind of recode and reconnect with the body, then you can, just like we kind of did now, like your body was like, whoa, hold it. This is an incredible moment. Don't miss this moment, right? Mm -hmm. And now you have that. Your body remembers what that feels like. You have that with you forever. And I think that's that's a huge gift. And that is... That is living your life until you die. There's so much here. There are so many conversations I want to have with you. We're going to have to wrap things up to respect some boundaries of time and reality here. So by way of wrapping things up, let me ask you, maybe ask both of you, and this is a little bit, this is an exercise we do at home, and it hadn't occurred to me this way, but this is essentially a very low intensity owning your shit exercise. Yes. This started as something we did with, we do with our kids in our extended family. So our Shabbat dinner, there are generally eight of us at the table, four kids. And part of how this emerged and the, the backstory is relevant here was a way to normalize the stuff that you're embarrassed about. Mm. You know, the kids are embarrassed about, you know, the stuff that the kids are embarrassed about. And so we just wanted to normalize that. So for Shabbat dinner, we put the embarrassed in a proud and grateful sandwich. So you start with what you're proud of, you end with what you're grateful for, and in between is what you're embarrassed about. And we've been doing that with uh, the kids in our families for years. And over time, different things have shifted as the kids get older and, and more self-aware. And I'll say for me and for the adults around the table, it is a weekly practice of being like, oh yeah, here's something I was embarrassed about. And we're very conscious of like, doing something real in order to model this for the kids, right? I don't want to get up there and be like, oh yeah, I was embarrassed that I uh, gave a speech and I had a piece of spinach in my teeth because there's, there's no, there are no stakes there, right? What's the stuff that I'm actually embarrassed about? So with that, I ask you, in the recent past, when have been moments when you've each felt proud, embarrassed, and grateful? Well, I was proud. I'll start with mine, with my three. I was proud yesterday. Um, we celebrated our eldest 11th birthday. And I was proud because I held it to get, well, mostly, uh, I held the birthday party with 20 kids, 20 11-year-olds, for the most part by myself, with some help from my mom. I said I was not around yet. So at a soccer field. So I was proud that, that I executed that. Way to go. Uh, I'll go right into the embarrassed one because I did have a mini meltdown on the way to the birthday party where Lila, Lila, our eight-year-old, was running late. And Sach was 
very anxious himself. And I just had a little meltdown in the car and kind of let it all out. And I'm grateful that my mom was able to help me out, that she lives close, which is something that Asai kind of initiated and led and forged ahead. And I often give him a really hard time about it. But at the end of the day, it means that I can lean on her when he's not around, which isn't often, but it does happen. And I'm really grateful for that. So thanks, Asai. You're welcome. I'll say thank you for sharing that. I think I'm going to go into here and now. I think I'm very proud of myself for really learning to share the space with Khalid. It's not easy for me. And I think part of what I'm working with and trying to, uh, you know, do talks is from, from patriarchy. And I think it just shocks me how deep this goes, this binary, that if she's rocking it, I feel insecure. If I'm sharing the space with her, Brent's going to love her more than me. And then what am I doing? And all this, all this talk, you know, and, and, and that's, that's something that's really, really hard for me. And I'm proud of myself that I, I keep blocking my own exits and really working on that and it's getting easier and easier. But I want to acknowledge that. And every so often I have these uh, patriarchy throw-ups where I'll just like throw up these mantra or these songs or these hymns, the patriarchy hymns, must control, must rule, da 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 It's like it's like coming out of me. It's like I have to spew it out. Compete, compete, like, must be better than. <laughs> not belittle my life to feel worthy because I'm so insecure. Right? So I that's know that song. I, 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 I've got it on <laughs> you know, my playlist. It's your anthem. <laughs> um, my embarrassed moment is certainly with the kids. There was a moment this, this week where I did a divide and conquer, which is the way I grew up. And I really, I really, I, Lila was making art. She wanted to make an art for her brother. And I said, don't, because he's going to throw it away anyways. He's not going to appreciate that. And then we came to dinner. And then when, when Lila was giving up, by the way, Lila sounds like Lilith. We named our daughter the closest we could to Lilith without it being because we live in Israel and Lilith is demonized in Israel. But that's another story. But that's okay. That's our mission. And then Galit, by the way, bless her heart. She's, she's, she keeps me accountable. So she's like, what the hell is this, Asel? What did you just do in front of the kids, right? No, like I, had, I didn't do it like that in front of the kids. <laughs> no, but no, no. But you, you kept it. You, you know, you said the thing, and she's like, "What is that? That's not cool, a sale." And for me, I want to say this is actually I'm embarrassed, but I'm also proud that I let I let myself be embarrassed. I let it land, and I felt the shame. I felt shame of like, what did I just do? I did the one thing that I hate my parents did to me, and here I'm doing it. And I felt super embarrassed, and it burned in my chest, and I wanted to get up and run or attack her or belittle her, but I just let that land. And then I apologized to the kids, and I said, "Yeah, that's me." And that was a moment of really owning your shit. And that just, it only took 13 years for me to own that. And I'm really proud of myself, but I'm also really embarrassed. And I think I'm really grateful. I'm grateful for you, Brent, for also, you know, I, I used to be a Jewish educator for many years and I had to detox for a while because <laughs> I felt I wasn't authentic. I was, I was, I was a facade. And I really want to thank you for giving us an opportunity, not only to bring our tour and what we believe in, but to re-engage in the Jewish tradition and the Jewish thought. And you created a very safe space. And I really, you know, you, I know that you want to curate spaces the way you want to see the world. And Brent, you curate a space, which I want to live in, which I think is honest and vulnerable. And, and, and I'm grateful for you. So thank you. Well, thank you. The gratitude is, is very, very mutual. This has been just a total pleasure and delight. I very much look forward to more conversations. We have to figure out either uh, in Israel or here, uh, definitely a lot more conversations to be had. I already want to talk to you about this entire rock climbing retreat for couples that I'm contemplating in my mind. Oh, um, yeah! 
So we're the, in. We're right. in. Let's let let officiate the remarriage ceremony at the end of the yes yes yes. yes. Really, it was an absolute pleasure and delight. I'm but this has been a total, total delight. Thank you, thank you, Galit and Asel Romanelli for coming and sharing your Torah with us. Thanks also to Johnny Taylor, our audio engineer, Faith Leaner, Jordan Steifman, David Goodbazol, and all the folks at the Pardes Institute. Please feel free to be in touch with me, Brent at Pardes.org, with any thoughts, questions about this episode, ideas for future episodes. You can also look at pardes.org.il to learn more about learning opportunities in Israel, in Jerusalem, Dafka, and online. And I hope to be with you again soon to learn more about how to be a good Jewish lover, how to show up better for the people in our lives. So thank you. Until next time.